We are in the last chapter uh -huh, of the book of Acts. So you can turn there if you want to. By the way, the title in the bulletin was a, uh, an early title that I w gave to this and I hated it and I was going to change it and I forgot to change it when the bulletins got printed and I'm like, oh rats. <laughs> so the actual title of this sermon is The Nice Barbarians. That's the, that's the actual title, The Nice Barbarians. <laughs> and this is kind of an, uh, an important subject actually. You can, um, y you know, there are some very nice barbarians. <laughs> And in our text today, we're going to look at some real barbarians, and they're nice. And I'm going to use the term barbarian um, and kind of take that term and apply it in our time just to unbelievers, okay? Unbelievers can be people of other religions, they can be people that are in cults, they can be atheists, outspoken atheists even, and they could be what the, about 30% of young people today call themselves, which is nuns. That is N-O-N-E-S, not, um, you know, Maria from the Sound of Music kind of nuns. It's like they, they're nothing. So, if, you know, if you say, what's your religion? None. I have none. They put down none on the form there. So, um, so the fact is there are, there are nice nuns and nice pagans and nice cultists and nice atheists. They're not all nice, but a lot of them are nice. So, um, we're going to look at some nice barbarians in the Bible and then we can talk about nice unbelievers to, today. And so we're in the last chapter of the book of Acts and from the author's, now from the author's point of view, Luke writing this and telling these different stories, this isn't the final story. And the chapters of course, divisions aren't his, they're ours. So there's actually two stories in, the, in Acts chapter 8 and we're looking at the first one. So this is the penultimate story. I've never got to use the word penultimate in a sermon before. That was great. <laughs> so um, that means it's the one before the last one. That's what that means. So um, Acts actually ends, the last story is Paul getting to Rome, finally. And uh, he's not going to do that yet though. Not yet. So last week we left him stranded on a beach on an island. He's not alone. He doesn't just have a volleyball with him or anything like that. He has a lot more company than you find on Gilligan's Island, but nobody as cute as Marianne. But um, there's 276 sailors, soldiers, and prisoners that got washed up on the beach after the storm battered their boat. They were on a, a great Roman grain ship heading to Rome, and they were riding on that ship, and the, the ship got broken up on, uh, right out, right off the, on these uh, shoals off the shore of this island. So they all swam for it, and they all made it, and this is the island of Malta. That's what we call it today. In the ancient world, they call it Melita. Um, so here we are with 70, 276 men who are wet, cold, worn out uh, on the beach. So verse 1, it says, when they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. They showed them great kindness. And Luke actually uses a Greek phrase which really means a, 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 an incredible amount of kindness. They were ex it, it was unusual level of kindness. So um, now that word in verse 2, it's translated natives in my, in my Bible, but the Greek phrase actually in the text is hoi barbaroi. The, the barbarians, the barbarians, that's, what they, that's who they are. Malta was inhabited by barbarians. Now Barbarian is a word given to everybody that doesn't speak Greek by the Greeks. So these are actually Phoenician people. 
you know, the ancient, very ancient civilization of uh, the Phoenicians was on the coast of um, the Mediterranean there, actually very close to Israel, where Lebanon would be today. And they had an, an incredibly advanced civilization. They were um, great shipbuilders and colonizers. Well, you know, our, I'm, I'm reading letters that they invented. So they actually created the alphabet, which uh, turned into our alphabet eventually. It was actually quite similar when they were done putting it together. So um, these guys would colonize all over the Mediterranean world. The famous city of Carthage in North Africa was theirs, the Phoenician. It was a Phoenician colony that grew out of that place. That became Rome's greatest enemy for a long time. And Malta was part of the Carthag Carthaginian Empire. So they, those Phoenicians settled on Malta as well. And then the Romans took it in 218 BC. So after 218 BC, Malta became a Roman uh, under a Roman province, probably under the Roman prefect in Sicily would govern that place, but they had their own rulers there as well. So, um, because they were from Lebanon originally, or that area of the world, the language they spoke was fairly similar to Hebrew. So Paul, Paul could probably converse with them um, in, in that language. Now they probably all knew Greek anyway. Everybody kind of knew Greek in those days, but he could have talked to them in a language very much like their own. But the fact that that's the language they spoke, that that was their native language, that made them barbarians. So when we say barbarian, we're not meaning uneducated or, um, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody that didn't speak Greek is a barbarian, okay? It was just a, it was a designation by the, because the Greeks looked down their nose at everybody. And after the Romans conquered Greece, the Greeks, sa the Greeks said, well, okay, if you speak Latin, you're not a barbarian either. But in their hearts, they knew that the Romans were really barbarians. But, but that, they kind of let them slide on that one. So barbarian just means, in the first century, not native speakers of Greek or Latin, though they probably did know Greek. Um, but the first thing the, the Maltese do, those barbarians, is build this big fire or a series of fires for these shivering men on the beach. And Luke uses that expression there. He says, they received us all. That means sailors, soldiers, and many, many prisoners. People that either on the way to becoming slaves or to die in the arena. So it's not a, they didn't have a class distinction between who was they were going to be kind to and who they were um, not going to be kind to. They were kind to them all. They received them all. That's pretty wonderful, actually. So all these people were treated as people in need uh, by the Maltese who were more than willing to help them out. It'd be pretty easy to say, well, hey, centurion, we'll take care of you and your soldiers, and uh, the, the sailors, maybe captain, we'll take care of your sailors, but you guys have to figure out what to do with these prisoners. We don't want anything to do with them. But that's not the case here. They welcomed them they welcome them all. They don't do that kind of a thing. So these are shipwrecked souls and we're going to take care of them. So I think we need to, uh, well, I think we tend to look at ancient pagans as barbarians in our modern sense of the word, cruel and heartless and lacking compassion and um, acting like Arnold Schwarzenegger and all that. And, and they, they were those things, you know, ancient pagan peoples. Life was cheap, slaves were easily abused in horrible ways, entertainment was provided by human suffering. That was that Mediterranean culture in so many ways, but they're human beings and, and kindness was a part of life too. Philanthropy, what we call that, is, is not a new thing, right? Um, in fact, Luke is using that word in verse 2 to describe the Maltese people's response to the shipwrecked men. He uses the word philanthropion. That's where we get our word philanthropist. If you remember the Wizard of Oz at the very end, the wizard saying, 
We have men in our world who do good deeds. We call them philo, 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 good deed doers. Because he can't remember the word philanthropist. But he's trying to say that. But that word philanthropist means somebody that does good to other people. And it literally means to love men. To love mankind. To, to do good to others. So that's exactly the word Luke cho chose to use about these barbarians on Malta. So there's a lesson for us here. Um, it's pretty important because Christians sometimes slip into this thing of thinking we're all that. Sometimes we demonize the lost unnecessarily. Uh, we assume the worst about them. We really focus on their sins and we don't realize that they're just human beings too. It, that's not a fair or accurate view of unbelievers or the world around us. That's one problem I have with, you know, there's certain films Christians make. Some of them are awful and some of them are okay. Um, one of them that was kind of problematic for me, even though it was fairly well made, was that film God is Not Dead. I don't know if anybody saw that movie, but the, the atheist professor in that movie is totally evil. I mean, he's just pure evil. And I, I don't think it's good for us to tell ourselves that atheist professors are always like that. In fact, uh, and that's not a true story, so that's actually a fictionalized character. It's kind of interesting because when they made a, a film out of The Case for Christ, which is a true story, the atheist professor in that movie is actually a very nice person because in the real story, it really was a very nice person. And, and, that, and you don't want to tell young people that if they go to college, there's going to be these evil monsters trying to destroy their faith. No, there's going to be very sweet people trying to destroy their faith. Because they're, they can be very nice and very uh, erudite and friendly and kind and all of that. So you don't want to be raised on fictional views of uh, unbelievers. Or that, um, I actually had a militant atheist professor when I was in school um, in Hollywood. And, and he, he hated everything I stood for. And he was kind of unjust to me. But he actually was a pretty nice guy. <laughs> he, just, he wasn't a monster kind of a person. So... Um, he was worldly and a little kooky and opinionated, but uh, not cruel or anything like that. So I've had a lot of experience personally with people in cults. And when they knock on my door, I always welcome them in. I love Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and hanging out with those people. 90% of the time, they're really nice, really nice people. But here's what you have to remember. Nice doesn't save anybody. Nice is not righteous. And to be right with God, you have to be righteous. And righteous has a whole depth of meaning beyond nice. Should righteous people be nice? Sure they should. But that's not what righteousness is. And nobody in this room is righteous apart from Jesus Christ because as was being prayed earlier, it's only the righteousness of Christ that makes us acceptable to God. And those people don't have that we can't look at them and saying, well, they're, they're lower than us because it was grace that gave it to us. Grace, which means an unmerited, undeserved favor from God that saved us. So all we can do in looking at them is say, wow, I, that's me apart from God's grace. So to look down on people is, is not the way we do it. That's not what Jesus did. So uh, he only looked down on self-righteous people, but not just sinful people. So nice does not deserve heaven. We're all sinners. We are profoundly so. And a Christian should be aware of that always about ourselves, that we are profound sinners too. And we shouldn't look down our noses on lost people. It, you know that old saying, there but for the grace of God go I? Well, that's really true uh, about our salvation and everything that's wonderful about what Christ has done for us. 
And so when we look at a sinner or the world, we say there but for the grace of God literally go I because I would be in that same condition. And it's not that I'm all that much greater now except that I have the righteousness of Christ that's going to secure my soul for eternity. Now an interesting incident happens with Paul showing, um, this, this is kind of developing this idea, um, showing another side of the people on Malta. I would call it superstitious. It's a very common kind of superstition. I would say it's limited to pre-scientific people except that it isn't. It's uh, very, very modern people all believe in the same sort of uh, superstition kind of stuff. That you, it's called karma or cosmic justice and karma has been totally taken out of the Hindu context and we just throw it around all the time in our culture and uh, it's cosmic justice, it's that idea, it's this strong compulsion to view events as having some kind of moral purpose or meaning, especially regarding punishments of wrongdoing. Human beings are, are wired by God for justice. Animals don't care about justice. Human beings, because we're made in the image of God, we have this sense of justice and right and wrong and it's a key part of our being made in the image of God. When something bad happens to us, sometimes we say, why me? Now if you're a Christian, you know why. You know who Ziggy is? Remember that little cartoon character, Ziggy? My favorite Ziggy, I've got it in a file somewhere and I don't know where it is, but um, it's, it's him on a, kind of like Paul, he's out on a raft in the middle of the ocean and he looks up and he says, why me? And there's this voice coming down out of heaven that says, want a list? <laughs> we want to make sense of the world and what happens in terms of some kind of rightness and wrongness of the universe, you know, some kind of sense of justice. Now, God's providence is over the world and there is an ultimate meaning to everything that happens because he actually is in charge of everything that happens. But the belief in cosmic justice um, is sort of apart from God. It's sort of this natural law built into everything. So everything has some kind of cause and effect kind of relationship in, in terms of what happens to you. That's how people think about this. That's karma. That's that idea of karma. It's an, it's an impersonal of power or law of the universe that's making things happen or not happen. Now, I th cosmic justice does bear witness to the fact that in the human soul people believe in justice, which is good. That is that mark of God's image in us because God does bring justice to his rational creatures. He's a just God. But the pagan version of this is taking God's providence out of the picture and making it some sort of impersonal law. That's what makes it not true. That's what's wrong with karma. Not every, not every bad incident that happens to you or somebody else is a punishment and not every blessing is a reward. Because God's providence oversees the world, not this law of karma. It's pagan thinking to think about karma or cosmic justice as some kind of law. So back to our story here. So out of philanthropia and out of this love of mankind, the Maltese build a big fire and a series of fires and the Apostle Paul goes around helping to collect wood for the fire. I love that about Paul. He's not a, well, I'm an apostle, I'll let you collect the wood. He's not one of those kind of guys. He's out there working too and just doing his thing. He never thinks he's a privileged person ever. We call that servant leadership by the way. That's when you're thinking about who to nominate for offices. That's what you're looking for. But as he brings a bundle to put on the fire, look out! Verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. So he's putting wood on the fire, 
the snake feels the, the heat of the fire and latches onto his hand. So he's picking his hand up and this snake is hanging off of his hand and his fangs are deep in his hand. And it's a viper. It's a poisonous snake. In fact, it's a deadly poisonous snake. So the barbarians see it happen. And they think, oh my, that viper is deadly, that poor man. But instead of just feel sorry for Paul, their rational pagan mind starts to come into function here. And they know that he's not long for this world, so they, they have to come up with a reason it happened to him. This is how pagans think. And a lot of modern people think this way too. Why did he get bit by the viper out of the 276 men stranded on this beach? Something about that guy. So verse 4. When the natives, the barbarians, that's that actual word, saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So most of these shipwrecked guys are prisoners, but Paul must have been the worst of them because the snake chose him. And cosmic justice arranged this meeting with Paul and the snake. They're trying to ascribe a reason so they can understand what just happened, right? That is superstitious thinking. Humans do that to make sense out of the world. Something strange happens or doesn't happen, and here something very strange happens. Paul doesn't die. So they start watching him really carefully. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. So they're watching and watching. But after they waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. So he went from murderer to god pretty, pretty quick there. You got to give the pagans credit they have an elastic mind, right? <laughs> From their point of view, that's, there's nothing irrational about their thinking about this. All of their experience, what we might call observational science, empirical observation, tells them that no human being can get bit like that by our local vipers and survive. Cannot happen. Never happens. So Paul survived. He's got to be a god. And of course, the pagan mind, there were stories about the gods, you know, visiting the planet as some kind of human form or something like that and it's kind of what they do. <laughs> a lot of common stories in pagan mythology. And this isn't the first time, if you remember in the book of Acts, that Paul was thought to be a god, right? Remember Acts chapter 14, Acts 14 in Lystra? Paul healed a man who had never walked before. That is impossible. You cannot heal a lame man who instantly gets up and runs around. You can't do it. Nobody can do that. It never happens today. It, this is an apostolic miracle. So chapter 14, verse 11, it said, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, and Paul didn't know their language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And then pretty soon, uh, so they're, they're saying all this in a language Paul and Barnabas don't understand, and pretty soon this priest, these priests are bringing this sacrificial ox to them, and they're going to offer it to them. 
So it says, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, saying, Man, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And it took them a long time to convince them that they weren't gods and to settle down. Because something happened that cannot happen in the real world. A lame man who had been lame from birth jumped up and started walking. So in the real world, in the universe made by an infinite personal God who alone has power over nature and everything else that he has made, and the real world is always going to crash into false ideas or pagan mythologies or things like that. They're always going to bump into each other. So it's all about worldview. Your basic assumptions and basic beliefs about the, the, how the world actually is, how it works. That's usually where the battle for truth lies in people's worldview. And they see a miracle. And a miracle is a miracle. So what are these pagans going to think? Well, if God's become men, if that's part of your worldview, the pagan mythology, something astounding like this is going to be interpreted naturally by what they believe and about the world. So paganism naturally led to the conclusion that Paul and Barnabas were gods because this miracle was impossible. It's a truly miraculous thing. And there's just no other explanation. What other explanation can they think of? Well, it's just like that here on Malta. It's the same kind of thing. So the Romans, uh, wow, those Romans, they have a God as one of their prisoners. That's amazing. Now we, with our Christian worldview, would consider Paul being bit as something ultimately under the providential rule of God. God allowed this to happen. In our view of things, ultimately there are no accidents in the universe. Although almost everything happens in our world according to a law of cause and effect. There's a natural order of things and things just cause other things to happen. But God providentially oversees all of that and he can intervene at certain times like he does here for Paul. So snake bites. Paul picked up a stick with a snake. Paul got bit. Cause and effect, right? Paul picked up a snake that, stick that had a snake. He put the, the snake in a fire. The snake didn't want to be in the fire. He jumped up and bit his hand. That's cause and effect. That's just how life is, right? God made an ordered universe. People fall down and they get hurt. People get killed in industrial accidents. Wild animals attack people. Um, all kinds of things can happen. But we believe that God has infinite knowledge and everything, even the simplest cause and effect thing, is under his authority, his watchful care and his perfect will for all things. So we call providence. God oversees all things. So Jesus taught this really clearly in Matthew chapter 10 verse 29 where he said, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So Jesus says, if a bird falls out of the sky and lands on the ground and nobody knows about it, the Father is totally in that situation. He knows all about it. His, his knowledge is infinite. His care for creation is infinite. Nothing escapes God's notice. And human beings, because we're far more precious than animals are, being made in the image of God, we have his attention in every detail of our lives, everything that happens. So it's God's world and as Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, God works all things after the counsel of his will. So it all comes together under his providential 
care of all things. So on this particular day God permitted the law of cause and effect to go in with, with, with regard to Paul and this venomous snake bit Paul, but he also divinely intervened to save Paul's life. So Paul wasn't saved because he was a god, Paul was saved because God wanted Paul in Rome. That's why he survived that, that encounter there. So Paul has to stand before Caesar. God had already revealed that fact. So why doesn't God just keep the snake away altogether? Well, God has his purposes. And he actually has a purpose in this story for that that's pretty easy to discern if we want to. We might not ever know God's purpose, like Job, for why certain things happened. Job didn't know till he, after he was dead why all that stuff happened. But um, God has a purpose here. And the, the nice barbarians, they need Christ, right? They need Christ as much as mean pagans need Christ. Because we're all sinners. So how much better to get their attention on the man who has God's message of salvation than to make Paul the center of news, right? What do you think people were talking about? You know those guys that land on the island? This guy picked up and the snake hanging onto his arm, one of our vipers, it was, and he, nothing happened to him. So if Paul wants to start talking to you about his life and some truth, would you listen to that guy? Yeah. And if he said right away, by the way, I'm not a god at all. I'm just like you. But let me tell you something. So of the 276 men washed up on the beach, everyone's talking about Paul out of all those men. The guy who survived the viper bite. So we find out the shipwrecked people are going to be on the island for three months. It says that in verse 11 after this is all kind of done. What do you think Paul was going to do with those three months? What would he be talking about? Well I'm pretty sure he had gospel conversations, right? And one of the first things that happens is Paul and the other shipwrecked men meet the leader of the island, a man named Publius. So Luke calls Publius a protos, which means the first one, the first. He's the first man of the island. Now I got to tell you this too, it's kind of interesting side note. This title, this title for the first man of the island, this leader of the island, was completely unknown in all of ancient literature that has survived into the modern era. No, there's no record of this guy on Malta ever being called a protos. In fact if you remember when we talked about Paul in Thessalonica, Luke called the leaders of the Thessalonican city polytarchs, and people used to attack the Bible pretty viciously, uh, critics of the Bible saying, there's no such thing as polytarchs. There's no record in any of the stuff we have from the ancient Roman world that says leaders in Thessalonica were called polytarchs. That can't be true. And then some archaeologists were like digging around in Thessalonica and they came up with some inscriptions and they found not one, not two, not three, not four, but they found out that all of the leaders of the cities in those areas were, were, were all called polytarchs. Well they made the same, those guys made the same thing about Malta. There's no records in, in all that we have from the ancient world describing the leader of Malta as a protos or a primus. But then they dug up inscriptions on Malta that exactly call the leader of Malta both. Protoss and Primus, Latin and Greek. So um, how interesting. I think, I, think, I think God knew what he was doing when he inspired the Bible. I think, I think it's true. But anyway, kind of comes up that way. So um, 
Publius, his estates are pretty close to where these guys crashed on the, on the beach there where they swam up to. So he invites them all home to entertain them for three days. Verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man, the Protas, of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days. Now Luke doesn't say who us is. He talks about us. Probably some sort of temporary provision was made for all of these people, the Romans, the sailors, and the prisoners. And after three days then some more permanent accommodations were made for them because they wouldn't be able to leave the island for three months because it's the winter season and the ships don't sail anymore. In fact they shouldn't have been sailing when they were probably. But special provisions were likely made for the important men who had the shipwreck. So I'm sure all these 200 and something prisoners were given some kind of accommodations but special provisions would have been made for the more important guys. So these men would have had probably invited into the home for meals and things like that of Publius's um, estates here. So probably he invited Julius the centurion and some of the other Romans that were um, of higher rank, key men in his detachment there, the ship's captain certainly and maybe junior officers of the ship, and then the special prisoner Paul because uh, he's a citizen of Rome and then his two companions because Luke says us so he's included in that. So Luke and Aristarchus were probably there as well. So meeting the leader of the island, um, probably three days of good food, uh, good conversation and entertainment and Publius is very kind. He's a nice barbarian. <laughs> and Paul's going to return a blessing if he can and a situation comes up where he can. Publius's father it turns out is very sick and Luke's a doctor and Luke identifies his problem. He diagnoses him this way, verse 8, it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. Now that is something an apostle can fix. So verse 8 continues, and Paul went in to see him and after he prayed he laid his hands on him and healed him. So now we've got two miraculous things that have happened in a very short period of time. A poisonous snake did not hurt Paul and people saw that happen and now Paul has healed a man instantly of a pretty dreaded physical condition. What happens when you heal the leader of an island's father? What happens when you do that? When, his, when you heal his dad, what do you think, how do you think he feels towards you? He's going to be very well disposed, right? And who's going to hear about it? Everyone. Everybody's going to hear about it, right? So the servants are going to talk about it. It's going to get spread really quickly over the island. So verse 9, after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. Again, this is an apostolic miracle. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. There's special signs of apostles. They can heal everyone that comes to them. They can heal any condition. And that's what Paul's doing here. That doesn't happen today. You can't, can't do that today. So everybody hears about it. Paul heals all these people. So they all start coming to him. There, um, all of them are being healed. And verse 11 says that the men were on Malta for three months. So um, again, no ships were going to be moving after that. So he's here the whole time. Three months after Paul heals Publius's father and other people start coming to him. Now, if Paul wants to, let's say, give a talk. Do you think people are going to want to hear what he has to say? 
Yeah, now Luke doesn't describe any kind of evangelistic thing here, but I, if you know Paul, I mean he doesn't have to mention it, if you know Paul, every city he's gone to, he preaches the gospel as soon as he has a chance to do it. So he, you know he's doing that. So um, I'm really curious if Paul left a church behind. Luke doesn't mention it, maybe it didn't happen, maybe those people didn't believe the gospel, I hope they did. But they certainly loved Paul all the time that he was there. And you can see that from the big send off in verse 10. They also honored us with many marks of respect. And he doesn't identify that. They probably gave him things. They probably sang to him. They, all that kind of stuff. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. So they not only welcomed them when they got there and were philanthropic in their whole attitude towards all of those that were shipwrecked, but Paul becomes a, a favorite, obviously, and he has tons of opportunities to share the gospel, and they, they still are loving him after that. So when he's ready to go, they're honoring him and all of that. So wonderful story, wonderful things happen. Paul brought the good news about Jesus to people every single place he visited, so I know he did that here, but I would really do want to know if he left a church there. But um, So uh, you can tell from Luke's account that Malta remained just the way he describes the whole incident, this is a pleasant memory for him. I mean, Luke is thinking really good things when he's thinking about Malta. He's writing a wonderful story, all positive. So for us, what do we think about? There are nice barbarians. There are nice pagans. There are nice unbelievers. There are nice cultists. There are nice atheists in the world. And they all need Jesus Christ. Niceness is not sinless. Niceness is not righteousness, like I said earlier. Even the most godly Christian you know is not saved by his or her philanthropic endeavors. The most godly Christian you know is not saved by their niceness, their being kind. The best Christian you know does not believe that he or she is righteous before God because of their good works or their generosity, or their pleasant disposition, or anything like that. They don't believe that. If they know the gospel, if they believe the gospel, if they know Christ, they know that's not why they're saved. The Christian is deeply aware of his or her own sin. The nice pagans might not see their sin as any big deal at all. They might not understand that at all. Perhaps they measure themselves by other people like modern people do and they feel like they're better than most so if there's some kind of accounting at the end they'll come out just fine. But a Christian knows that sin is serious because a Christian looks into his own heart and says there's sin in there. It's bad. It's an offense to God. And the Christian doesn't have to be told that. Why not? Because the Holy Spirit reveals to us our sin. That's exactly what the Bible says his job is. One of his jobs is to convict the world of unrighteousness, to, to tell, show us that we're sinful. And he, the Holy Spirit, as he reveals our sin to us, he makes our need for a savior real to us. And that's how we become actually saved. When we learn about Christ, the Spirit gives us eyes, spiritual sight, to see that Jesus is perfect. He's the perfect and most wonderful Savior. And so we apprehend that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the grace of God. He's a perfect Savior. Now hopefully, hopefully the nice pagans, the nice barbarians on Malta 
did have that experience, we're just not told. But we pray that the people we know who don't know Christ will have that gracious work in their lives as well. That's our great desire for them. And then as we share the gospel with them and offer them the truth, we pray that God would do that work in them. So love the barbarians. Love the barbarians. And remember that nice barbarians need Christ too. Just like you do. Okay, that's it. Next time, the last story. Luke's final account. The end of this story as Luke and Paul were living it at the time. That's right up to the time when this was written. So Paul does get to Rome. Stay tuned and let's pray. Lord, it's a joy to see nice barbarians. It's, it's a joy to see nice pagans, big-hearted people, philanthropic people, grateful people, kind people. But Lord, you see the depth of our sin. Not just their sin, but our sin. And you provided a perfect Savior, perfect in every way. And we are so to be filled with thanksgiving. We pray that we would never lose sight of having a thankful heart for your grace to us. And Lord, we ask you to give us a love for those that don't know you. May we be philanthropic with the gospel. May we take the best gift in the world and give it to those that don't have it. Take away our pride and let us see ourselves as sinners who are sharing with others how to find salvation. Let us be channels of your grace and your compassion. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.